Father, we've come now to the part where we get to study your word, looking at the things that you have revealed yourself through this holy, awesome, incredible word of God. Thank you so much. and Thank you for writing our names in your book of life. Uh, we may be able to discern the spiritual truth that we're about ready to get into. And I pray that you'd bless it to the nourishment of our spirits. And may the love that we have here be blessed to the nourishment of our fellowship. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen. amen. You may uh, be seated and you can greet somebody with an ear hug, ear high five. All right. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming back. Sherry or David, I need my, my, uh, my backpack, please. Um, we actually had three songs planned, um, but my wife informed me that, uh, no, you want to cancel that third one, because I was singing it, you know, and uh, we don't want to chase people away. We want them to want to come. So anyway, thank you for your patience. Thank you for being here tonight. We are going to be in the book of Thessalonians, guys. First Thessalonians, we are in the second chapter. And we're going to be looking at the ideal Christian worker, at least two elements of the ideal Christian worker. If you remember, this letter was written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica. Um, this church didn't have any problems with it, per se, uh, so he's just giving some doctrinal things to them, and he's especially emphasizing all throughout this one letter and the next letter, Second Thessalonians, the return of Jesus Christ. And I don't know how you feel about it, but um, hey, any day, any day you want to come, Lord, I'm ready to go. I, I would love to go home now. So if you're that last person to get saved, could you please hurry up and do it? And then we can all just go, all right? Okay, in chapter 1, Paul has told us how the gospel came to Thessalonica. Now he's telling us how he ministered to these young believers, okay? Um, he gives us two pictures of an ideal Christian worker. He starts off by defending his own character in ministry, and it's not because he's insecure, walking around, you know, wanting people to make him feel better about himself. <clears throat> no, but he has many enemies in Thessalonica. And of course, everywhere Paul went, he made enemies. Um, that's just what happened to him. He dis um, these enemies discredited him especially when he wasn't there behind his back. And uh, they kind of uh, called him a self-serving coward because he left so quickly out from Thessalonica. Of course, you guys know why he left, because they were chasing him for his life. So I, you know, I've never been chased for my life. You know, I've, I've, I've run, uh, usually from Sherry, you know, from room to room, Sorry, honey, I had to throw you under the bus sometime, right? Anyway, in verses 1 and 2, he maintains the integrity of his ministry. In verses 3 through 5, he maintains the integrity of his message. The integrity of his ministry and the integrity of his message. I think that we are in short supply of leadership 
that is leadership of integrity. I think that's become a, a fluid definition now, you know. What does it mean to you to be a person of integrity? For some people, you know, thievery is a lack of integrity, stealing things. But then for some others, it's like, well, how much did you steal and from whom did you steal it? And then if you stole it from the very, very rich and you stole, you know, a decent amount, then you're a person of integrity still. Anyway, God judges on a different scale. He says in verse 1, you yourselves know, brethren. Again, he's defending his ministry right now. You, you know, yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. God bless you. Paul opens the section declaring that his and Silas and Timothy's visit to Thessalonica was not a failure. All right. Despite the attacks that were being made on him by uh, what one commentator called scandal mongers outside the church because of their hatred of him. It was not that he was a per that this was a personal issue with Paul. What mattered was the credibility of the gospel. Because if he was discredited, then his message would be discredited also. And if you look carefully at this chapter, you can see how they tried to discredit him. A lot of different ways. First of all, they pointed out that he had a police record and therefore he was an untrustworthy individual. You see that in verse 2. This is implied, okay? And I'm going to read to you from the New Living Translation. It says, You know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there. If you remember when they came from Philippi, uh, they had got arrested for, you know, um, casting a demon out of a young lady. And when they uh, lost their, the, the, the ones who were making money off of her, um, lost that. They raised a, a bunch of people against Paul. They ended up in prison. And, you know, that was the original jailhouse rock because that is when the prison opened up after a big earthquake. So there's a reputation he had for being a criminal. Secondly, and you see this all in verse 3, they accused Paul of being delusional, of being, uh, having a ministry that was based on impure motives, and that he deliberately would deceive others. Look at verse 3. So you can see we were not preaching any deceit or impure motives or trickery. And we'll see how common that actually was back in the day from other religious hucksters, so to speak. They also charged him with, and this is in verse 4, preaching to please others but not God. He was a man pleaser. He says in verse 4, our purposes to please God. This was his answer to it, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. And again, this is for this congregation that, you know, they're, they're young. They're new believers. And um, they might get shaken up a little bit about their founder. And then if you look at verse 9, verse 9, it says, I'm sorry, forgive me. 
fourth thing. They said that Paul is in the ministry as a mercenary to get what he can out of it materially. In verse 5, it says, God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. Then in verse 9, night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. So that was to refute the charge that you're just in it for the money, buddy. And indeed, a lot of ministers are in it just for the money. And then they said, Paul only wants personal glory. And he answers that in verse 6. As for human praise, and again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, okay? As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. In other words, Paul was really one of those guys who could actually say, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. Do you remember saying that in school? I don't care what anybody thinks. It wasn't true, was it? <laughs> he cared about what everybody thought. But here Paul could actually say, as for human praise, I didn't ask of it, and I didn't seek it from you or anyone else. And then finally, worst of all, they accuse Paul of being somewhat of a dictator. But he counters that in verse 7 when he says, We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. Despite what you think of my leadership style, I was there to care for you as a mother cares for her child. So in spite of these charges and opposition, he goes back to verse 1 and says, Our coming to you was not a failure. It was not in vain. And what he's referring to here was the character of the ministry. Because it was evident to everyone that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was a success. The church was established. And coming was not an empty or hollow as if he were just sort of a con artist or a charlatan. He says, our coming to you was not in vain. In verse 2, he says, even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi. Philippi was only about 40 miles away or so. And if you turn to Acts chapter 16, we can see what, what happened to him in Philippi. Okay, Acts chapter 16, looking at verses 23 and 24. kind of told you the circumstances that got Paul in trouble. And then it says in verse 23, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And verse 24, and having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. What I pictured these prisons to be like um, is, is one of those things where you can't really lay down, but you can't sit up either, right? So your body is in a very contorted situation. There is no air ventilation. There is no sanitation. There is no water flow. There's nothing in there, okay? Just that and a door. And then it says they had many stripes laid on them. New Living Translation says they were severely beaten with rods. Uh, they would strip you almost to nakedness and then take these rods like bamboo poles and just beat you till you were raw. 
and then throw you into this prison that was dark and dank and infested and leave you there. And, of course, we know what they did. They began to complain, moan, and groan and said, right, you know, God, if this is the way you treat your servants, I'm out of here. No, didn't they? started praising and worshiping God. David Edmund, or sorry, David Hebert, a commentator, said, such a Roman flogging was no light matter. It was an experience not soon forgotten, <laughs> you think. Stocks were often used for the tortures as well as detention. This is from the International Varsity Commentator comment, um, Commentary. With extra holes so the legs could be forced into painful positions. When Paul arrived in Thessalonica, the wounds on his back from Philippi were still fresh. So it wasn't like, you know, I don't know about you. If I'd taken that kind of a beating, I'd take a month off. Okay, I'd take a month off and, and go someplace where people were nice. I don't know where that is, but that's where I'd go, right? But now Paul, he jumps, out, he jumps back on, on the horse and heads on into to Philippi, and he begins to minister. Now, the point is this. Um, he would not carry on in the face of beatings and conflict if he was in this just for himself. Only someone who is absolutely insane would continue to do stuff like this. If Paul was in it for himself, he wasn't very smart about serving his own self-interest, right? So more proof of the power of the gospel, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. John Calvin said, We know that indignity and persecution weaken and indeed completely break men's minds. It was therefore a work of God that although Paul had suffered various misfortunes and indignity, he appeared unaffected and did not hesitate to launch an assault on a large and wealthy city for the purpose of leading his people captive to Christ. This is what you call storming the gates of hell. Remember? And what did Jesus say? Those gates will not prevail. They're not going to be able to hold you back. As a matter of fact, Paul says in verse 2, if you look at that, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Despite what some of Paul's accusers were saying, he did not only preach the gospel when it was easy or convenient, he knew what it was like to speak boldly for the Lord in the midst of much conflict. Have you ever started to bring, have you ever started to bring the Lord up in a conversation but then backed off because you knew it's going to start a fight? Right? It's just going to start a fight, you know, especially if it's your relatives on Thanksgiving or one of those holidays. You know, you just learn to keep your mouth shut. Well, Paul wasn't that kind of guy. All right. And maybe we should be more like Paul. But I want you to notice that, um, well, a couple of things here. The word that's rendered conflict is agon or agon. And we get our word, what? Agony from it to agonize, and it contains a metaphor that's drawn from the athletic games or the arena, and it means the place of contest, and then the contest itself, like a race or a wrestling match or a battle. Uh, quoting Mr. Hebert again, such a conflict always involves intense exertion and strenuous, persistent effort to overcome the determined opposition or the dangerous antagonist. 
There was a determined, persistent, antagonistic effort to oppose Paul, but he didn't shrink from the challenge. Instead, verse 2 again, he was bold in his God to speak. He says, we were bold, so it wasn't just him. It was Timothy and Silas also. Now, that you think of boldness as, you know, that person who doesn't keep their mouth shut, who, you know, are really proud about, I always speak my mind. And always we kind of wish that they'd, you know, keep that little section of mind to themselves. Um, but what this word means, the word bold there, it, it does mean a sense of being able to boldly speak without fear, but it speaks of a state of mind. In other words, he wasn't anxious. And he wasn't foaming at the mouth to get back at them. He's not stressing about this. As a matter of fact, he's replying with calmness, with confidence, and he's not afraid to speak it. Henry Morris of the bird of the bird <laughs> of the word bold says it symbolizes the state of mind when the words flow freely. The attitude of feeling quite at home with no sense of stress or strain. This attitude includes both boldness and confidence. Here they are strenuously opposing Paul, Silas, and Timothy. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy's response was a calm, collected, bold, confident. Have you ever been in a situation where you begin a discussion about maybe a political issue? That's a really good one, right? And before you know it, you're just as mad as a wet hen. You're just angry, right? And no longer are you making any sense out of your mouth because you're not thinking from this part of your brain anymore. You've gone back here to the lizard part of your brain, <laughs> all right? Um, I have to share this. It was always funny to watch. I mean, I didn't know it was funny then, but it's funny now. But my poor dad could never keep up with my mother when they got into an argument. And then he'd resort back to that lizard part of the brain, and he'd say things like, are you serious? What, what does that even mean? You know, but you didn't dare laugh because that lizard could get up, you know. Anyway, 2 Timothy 2, look at there. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. And you see the way Paul approached this kind of serious opposition that he was receiving. Remember? They're slandering him. They're saying you're just in it for the money. You're just in it for the pride. You're trying to rip people off. You know, you're a little Hitler walking around here. And notice what he says in chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm talking to one of the very young men who was with him on this journey. He says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Think about those people that we just talked about who are in opposition. I'm going to be gentle to them. I'm going to teach them patiently, humbly. I don't think so. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You see, it's not you that they're angry at. 
And that will help you a lot if you just realize that. It's not a personal matter, so don't take it personally. They're reacting to the Spirit of God that dwells within you. They're reacting to the truth being thrown in their face, and their conviction of the Holy Spirit is all over them. So they're getting all up about it. That word quarrel, by the way, the word quarrel in verse 24, it's a military term for hand-to-hand combat. The Lord's servant must not get into hand-to-hand combat with words. Okay? Instead, you must be gentle and kind to all. Now, may this convict you when you're driving on the freeway and you're having hand-to-hand combat with that cars around you or you're, you're getting back at your wife or your husband or your boss and you have that conversation going on in your head and you're warring back and forth and then finally you hit the knockout blow with that little last statement that you say and you walk off into the sunset. Don't do that. Be gentle. Be kind to all. Sometimes the hardest thing to do in ministry is to be gentle with people who are in opposition. And it's not because they're hurting us. It's because they're hurting themselves. They're destroying themselves. When Paul says we must be gentle and patient with all men, he means even those who are their own worst enemies. A servant's purpose is not to win the argument, but to win the soul. He wants to see deceived persons brought to repentance. In other words, to say not to to you or to me, But to God, I was wrong. I've changed my mind about who you are and what your purpose is and what you want for my life and acknowledge the truth. Okay, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We saw the integrity of Paul's ministry. Now let's look at the integrity of Paul's message in Thessalonica. Chapter 2, starting at verse 3. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. In verse 3, he says, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness. And what Paul is doing here is drawing a contrast between the gospel that he preached there in Thessalonica and the competing religions religions that were there in the city. First of all, his, his his message is coming from his heart. It's genuine. It's authentic. There's no deceit, uncleanness, or guile in his ministry. But there were many competing religions in the region, and many of the ministers of those religions were motivated by greed and gain. The city of Thessalonica Thessalonica, sat on the Ignatian Way. You guys ever heard of that before? It's a famous Roman road, okay? It, it took it from east to west to Rome, right? It was a famous highway. Thessalonica was also an important port and a melting pot city with cultures from all over the world. There was a staggering variety of religions and religious professionals in the city. You could find the worship of the gods of the Olympian pantheon like 
Apollo, Athena, and Hercules. There were native Greek mystery religions. They were celebrating Dionysus and the sex and drinking cult that he was the founder of. The Greek intellectual and philosophical traditions were also represented, and there were shrines to many Egyptian, Egyptian gods, Isis, Seraphis, and Anubis. They also present were the Roman state cults that deified the political heroes of Rome. And then there were the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles. All of this in the city of Philippi. It sounds like the city of Glendale and Peoria and Phoenix, right? There's all kinds of religions being represented here. Now, most of these religions were evangelical. What I mean, Christian? No, I mean that they would, they would go out to seek to gain believers. They would witness, they would share their faith, they would do whatever they needed to do. And they sought to spread their faith using itinerant evangelists and preachers. Now, most of those who were their missionaries were opportunists. They took everything they could from their listeners. And once they had depleted them, they would go on and find someone else. Um, commentator, um, I can't remember his first name, last name is Neil. He says, there has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. Holy men of all creeds and county, countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the believing and the skeptical. Imagine what they would have done if they had had Facebook and Instagram. All right? Paul separates the ministry that he, Silas, and Timothy performed and says, For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. It's God alone who examines the motives of our hearts. Okay? Now, in verse 3, he tells us that there was no deceit. Now, in the King James Version, if you have a King James Version, you're reading through that, it says guile, right? Guile. Uh, that word carries the idea of baiting a hook. In other words, Paul's not trying to trap people into being saved or to trick them into being saved. He's not baiting them the way a clever salesman might trick people into buying their product. Um, I don't know if you ever walked in a mall and you see those kiosks right in the center of the mall. Um, I don't know about you, but I really have a difficult time walking around those things because if they catch your eye, they're going to try to draw you in. Well, this one young lady caught my eye, and she hooded on something, and, and I don't know why. I have no idea why, but I looked over at her hand, and that was it. Right, the next thing I know, I'm sitting in a chair getting makeup applied to my face. Um, and, of course, you know, she says, it's free, it's free, it's free. Yeah, right. You get the idea. All right. Spiritual witnessing and Christian salesmanship are two different things. You have to come up with an apologetic for why you believe what you believe. 
There is a reason you want to give people to accept Christ. And that, a lot of people think, just turns into salesmanship. You're trying to sell them something, but they're different. Salvation does not lie at the end of a clever argument or a subtle presentation. It's the result of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's going to convince a person. You should never ever feel like you got to sell it and that you got to close the deal. If you see that they're done with it, you know, the conversation is over, that's fine. The conversation between you and them may be over, but I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is going to use what you shared to drive them crazy. You ever heard Chuck Swindoll's prayer for the lost? It's so good. God, give them no rest. Scare them to death. Please, make them so aggravated and miserable that they have to look up and find you. Thank you, Chuck. <laughs> Amen, though, right? Um, verse 5, he says that neither at any time did we use flattering words nor a cloak for covetousness. Paul's enemies and... Thessalonica accused him of being a cheap peddler of a new message just to make money. They accused him of using flattering words as a cloak. And the word cloak is exactly what you would think. It's a cloak. If you ever saw Princess Bride, they have a Holocaust cloak that the guy wore, all right? Or if you watch The Lord of the Rings and you see, I think it's the guy, the rider, the ranger, he had a cloak on. Um, I don't know why I'm going into that, but anyway. People with ill intent might wear a cloak to conceal a weapon and hide their intent to do harm. Paul is saying he, Timothy, and Silas never wore trench coats to use or use flattery to gain advantage of the Thessalonians. In the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the scriptures, he says, God knows we never used words as a smokescreen to take advantage of you. They say that a flatterer is a person who manipulates rather than communicates. And don't you get suspicious if you're in a store or in the mall or someplace at a car dealership and the first thing that comes out of the salesman's mouth is how great you look or, you know, how you're making such an excellent choice, right? You always suspect them, don't you? Well, that's not what we do. That's not our MO. Some people still try to flatter God, though, especially after they've been busted. Uh, Psalm 78. Turn there, please. Psalm 78. When I was little and I knew that I was about to get a spanking, I tried to flatter my father. I turn around and say, I love you, Dad. I love you. I love you. I love you. Never swayed him. But here in Psalm 78, we have a situation where the children of Israel had been marching through the wilderness. And they had been doing what, you guys, you students of the Bible? You know, complaining. Never happy with anything, right? Always complaining. 
And they were harboring resentment towards God. After God, all that God had done for them. And even though the accommodations were not like a five-star hotel. And even though they were eating basically the same meal every day. He still took them out of slavery. And if they would just be patient enough and trusting enough, he's going to take them into a place where it's going to be beyond their wildest dreams. But they're not thankful. They are ingrates. So notice what he says in verse 34, 78, 34. When he slew them, what do you mean? Well, he cut them down. If you remember, there was a plague. There were fiery serpents. Or he allowed the enemies to, to take them out so that they would repent. And they did repent, at least on the outside. Notice what it says in verse 34. He slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. So it looks like they've repented, right? That they've changed. Their heart is now, okay, yeah, we get it. We understand. And I'm so sorry. And I love you, Lord. I mean, I really, really do. Nevertheless, verse 36, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with them, nor were they faithful in his covenant. It was just lip service to get the pressure off. I think all of us know that we've used that one time or another as a teenager, especially. But in the book of Revelation, they're going to be calling out for the rocks to fall upon them. God's judgment is going to fall on them in a very severe way. And there will be repentance, but it won't be the repentance of the heart. Just get the pressure off. They were not thankful. They were ingrates. So he cut them down. Um, I think as David Guzik said, flattery is just another form of lying. It means saying one thing to God with our lips while our hearts are far from him. Remember in Mark 7, Jesus says, hey, you praise me with your lips, but your heart, you're not with me. Some ministers and preachers try to influence people by appealing to their egos. They don't deal with the issues of sin and their teachings so as not to offend or put anybody off, especially if they are high donors. A true ministry of the gospel will deal honestly but lovingly with sin and judgment and will leave the unbeliever with nothing to boast of himself. Paul's method was as pure as his motive. He presented the word of God in the power of the spirit and he trusted God to do the work. I think we need to watch our motives when we are serving God. We need to watch our motives when we are praising God, when we are thanking him. Because we may be singing it in the church or in your car to your favorite worship tune, but you may turn around and in your own home be as ungrateful and spiteful as ever. Okay? Psalm 51, David said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And that means just for you. You, you just got to own it. You got to know of your own hypocrisy and just own it. 1 John 1, 9 kicks in, still in the Bible, as far as I know. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Okay, that's it. It's just a big deal. How many times when you were busted as a teenager, if you had just owned it with your parents, it would have been all right. But because you dug in your heels and would not own it, it got hard for you. Exactly. The idea is that God will be satisfied with nothing but purity in the soul. Adam Clark said, Hear this, you that preach the gospel. And when I read that first sentence, I looked around and said, What, who, me? He goes, Yeah, you. Can you call God to witness that in preaching you have no end in view by your ministry but his glory in the salvation of souls? Is it about you, Dennis, or is it about the people you're here to serve? Do you enter into the priesthood for a morsel of bread or what is ominously and impiously called a living of benefice? You know, um, Believe it or not, some people actually go into the ministry to make a living, like a career move. Um, Dr. Moffitt, when he was alive, he was the founder of Arizona Christian University. It was Southwestern Bible College back in the day. And he did a tour uh, through all the seminaries from California to the East Coast. And the thing that disturbed him was the fact that many of our young pastors, he said even most of them, we're judging God's call by the pay rate and the benefit package. And that's how they knew where God had called them. That's very American, isn't it? Very American. Um, we should pray for the day when we have more men like Sherry's father who came as a missionary from Canada, from Hamilton, Canada, and had the heart that would say, just send me to the hardest place you got. And that's where I will minister. And that's exactly what he did. Bless his heart. Or is God witness that in all these things, you have no cloak of covetousness. But woe to that man who enters into the labor for the sake of the higher. He knows not Christ. How can he preach him? That's a scary thought. If you are a pastor, and I will say this, you're preaching a prosperity gospel, and you're successful. You've got the house filled. You may go out thinking that, man, you're really anointed and blessed of God. And I don't know, maybe there are. But the truth is, where's your heart at? Why are you doing what you're doing? Would you continue preaching if all of a sudden you had to move into a double-wide trailer in a trailer park, and you had to trade in that Bentley for a Hyundai? And would you minister to the same people? Or would you go off looking for another place where you could ply your trade? Just a thought, guys. Just a thought. All right. I think that's all I have for you tonight. Is that enough to think about? Yeah. Next week, we will finish um, 
this section of scripture out and look at the other um, motives for proper and righteous ministry. All right, let's all stand, please. What's that? Okay, thank you. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I know that I said a lot of things tonight and that um, at least some of it is worthy of meditating on and thinking. You know my heart. And I, I seek to minister without guile, without deceit. So I ask that the good things that were shared the things, God, that are pure and noble and praiseworthy, um, all of those things would be what these precious people remember. And I pray, Lord God, that it would be strength to their bones, nourishment to their spirit, and may they rejoice totally, completely, wholeheartedly in you. So bless them and keep them, Father. Make your face to shine on them and be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. Let's sing this last song and then we will be dismissed. <laughs>